Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Very good. <laughs> what a wonderful start. I am back from holidays and delighted to be doing the podcast again. He's bronzed. He's bronzed. I don't know about bronzed, bronzed. and back in the booth. <laughs> <laughs> we are here, as usual, to tell you all about what's new on Rock's Back Pages this coming week, including Radiohead, Gladys Knight and the Pips, with whom we have a splendid audio interview, and our featured writer of the week, John Young, of Trouser Press, Cream and Musician fame. We're going to start with Radiohead, mainly because... We have this week published a book in conjunction with Constable or Little Brown called Present Tense, a Radiohead Compendium. It is, as you might imagine, an anthology of articles about this great British band. Interviews, reviews and commentaries. I think it's pretty great, but then I would say that since I edited it and put it together. (laughs) Um, But uh, to sort of showcase this and promote it, we have four free pieces on the Rocksback Pages homepage, including my intro to the book, an early piece by Jim Sullivan, an interview with Tom York, talking about the almost notorious Creep, the song Creep, that propelled them really. That he uh, now hates. That, of course, he now hates, that's right, and they don't play anymore. But it was it was the song that really kind of launched them into the stratosphere, if you like. There's also a Tom Doyle piece from Q, published just when OK Computer was coming out. So it's a sort of an, an account of that. And finally, Rob Young in Uncut, talking to Johnny Greenwood about his soundtrack scores for people like Paul Thomas Anderson. So, Radiohead Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thom York. I'm glad to see Tom spelled, Tom Doyle spells his name correctly. The one Thom, I'll allow to get away with being Tom, is Tom Bell from Philadelphia. <laughs> um, interesting, whenever I um, put a, a scan of an article about them through the optical character recognition software, he's, his name always comes out as Thorn. And he is a bit of a thorn in your he's side. He's certainly a thorn. I, I find him utterly unbearable. But... <laughs> <laughs> Don't mince your words. Uh, on, on this podcast, we really say how we feel. Um, uh, you know, there are things I like about him. I think Johnny Greenwood's a really fine guitar player and, and sonically they've done some interesting stuff but I'm so uninterested in Tom York's pain you know <laughs> this kind of privileged middle class boy kind of grappling with his angst it's just what, so, so the middle classes aren't allowed to no, be they in aren't. pain they aren't no. whose pain are you interested uh, in I mean working class pain <laughs> <laughs> a true socialist <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, well Mark is the original champagne socialist I am the sort original. of Irish whiskey socialist yeah, quite yes with some <laughs> champagne on the side um, uh, chaser and there's something so punchable about him you know you see those pictures of him sort of d- holding his arms out as, as if he's been crucified maybe but he's it, just maybe he's just doing the Titanic pose who knows uh, yes. no, it's pre-Titanic I believe damn um, uh, and you know and he's playing in front of you know 50,000 people at Glastonbury yet he's been crucified maybe he by has his been agony. crucified Maybe he just really hates about people. That. Maybe he should be crucified. <laughs> All right, so, okay. So that's one side of the debate. I am an unapologetic Radiohead fan, <clears throat> which isn't to say I don't find Thom York irritating, sometimes in the extreme. But I do think they are the greatest British band of the last 20 years. I think they have made some 
utterly glorious music. Well, the bar is set very low in the last 23 years. <laughs> well, I think OK Computer is a very high bar, and I don't okay. think anyone has... Uh, has rivaled that in terms of... I mean, I think it's it, it, and it's, it's as astonishing as most people, many people would say. But I think they have managed to do all kinds of brilliant things since then. Uh, they haven't made an album as great as that. I mean, why are they great? I, I suppose because I think they managed to reinvent rock, putting it as simplistically hmm. as possible. I think they did reinvent rock. They took it way beyond where you thought they might go. Uh, if you think about Creep or Pablo Honey, the, the, the very early stuff, no one really would have imagined how far Radiohead would sort of push push the envelope. And I think they really have done. The way they've used electronic instrumentation... I think, the, yeah. I think they are... I mean, they are musically adventurous as a band. Whether you like the adventure they go yes. on is, is a kind of another question. But I think they do go places, as you say. I mean, there's a lot of sort of pretentious musical analysis that goes on about how many bars are in this, you know, chorus and all this kind of stuff. But... Nevertheless, they have the capacity, I think, to be interesting. I do agree with that. I think one of the problems, and, and I sort of address this a little bit in the introduction, is that I think there's a sort of inverted snobbery about educated middle-class bands. Now, I might say that being educated <laughs> middle-class, but I do think certainly in the Britpop era, there was this sort of celebration of bands like Oasis, and in a sense, Radiohead were the anti-Oasis. But I would, I would sort of uh, well, I posit the question... Radiohead to Oasis. Yeah. Well, that, that, Whose music not, is going to endure longer? That's not difficult. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd say, on the other hand, that, that, that you could say that some ways Radiohead were the spearhead of what the current situation now, where British independent rock music is almost entirely a middle-class pursuit. Sure. Um, I mean, the last band That's a who, good point. The, the, the last bands who weren't were really the Arctic Monkeys, mm. uh, and it is now almost entirely the preserve of, of the middle classes whose mummies and daddies can afford to bail them out for the first four or five years of their career mm, and so mm, on and so mm, forth. Mm. And I think that, that radio were the spearhead of that. Well, I think that's a good point. What I would say about, say, Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys is that, you know, he's a self-educated guy, yeah. unlike the Gallaghers, who are sort of Self- willfully and, and unabashedly uneducated, yes. really. Yeah. Uh, and I object to that. So I think the Arctic Monkeys, they might not have gone to mm. university, but they also have, I think, pushed the, the bar. Oh, I agree. But again, going back to sort of the, the Britpop period, I mean, Blur were a very self-consciously middle-class band, despite their affectations of London yobbery. They, they were anything mm. but. Mm. So, but um, I mean, then again, Blur. I mean, Damon Albarn has gone on to do interesting things, unlike has. either of the. Absolutely, oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. completely. Just briefly, so some of the highlights of the book. So we, we start in the very early days when they were still called On a Friday, when they played, possessing. When they played on a stage that I have also played on, just to throw oh, that oh, in. We, we are <laughs> not worthy. all about you. <laughs> we we are not worthy. I just can't wait, you, your I just turn and your role in the Radiohead story Stories. will come in a minute. Can't wait. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it's huge. Please it's really stay important. tuned for this because it's, it's vital. But, uh, so they were... <laughs> They were called on a Friday. And so the very first bit is, is there's reviews and interviews when they were still called on a Friday. John Harris reviewed them in 
Oxford, where they, the, the area they were from. And then we sort of moved through all kinds of, I think, some great interviews, some terrific reviews of the important albums. Simon Reynolds's long, long piece on Kid A is brilliant. Nick Kent reviewed OK Computer. There's, there's a long Q&A from Addicted to Noise in 1996 with Tom and Johnny, which is great. Will Self, a profile, a, a a sort of conversation with Tom from 2003 when Hail to the Thief came out and then sort of finally a lovely piece by Adam Thorpe in the TLS of course the TLS has to get in the 2016 when A Moonshake Pool come out an album that both Jasper and I like very much even if it was a bit sort of odds and ends I think it's it's probably the best music that, that they'd released yeah I think so I think it's certainly my favourite of their more recent yeah. stuff yeah 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 maybe the centrepiece is a very long piece by the brilliant Mark Green Grief or Grafe, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, G-R-E-I-F, rather than I-E-F, uh, who founded the brilliant magazine N Plus One. It's a really long, long piece called Radiohead or the Philosophy of Pop, which I think is one of the most interesting things I've ever read about pop music, to be honest. Anyway, present tense, a Radiohead compendium, if you're a Radiohead fan, I you know, I, I, I recommend it highly, don't I? But at, at this if you really point, don't it, like them, you can buy one and burn it, sort of sacrificially, if you really yeah, like. Yeah, because we'll still get some royalties. Exactly. Thank we, you. Once you bought suggestion, it, it doesn't... Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and, and at this point, I'd like to just ask you about your pivotal role oh, yeah, in I mean, the creative <laughs> journey. Absolutely. So I'm on In Rainbows, the album. Oh, my God. Yeah. As a 10-year-old. Clapping. 10, it was 11 about an hour ago. No, I think it was 10, I think it was 2007, and I think it was probably a month before Jasper, my 11th he's birthday. Only about, he's about 12 now. Right, yeah. <laughs> 11 in, in 2007, 12 today. <laughs> but Maths was never my strong point. 15 Step, I looked it up, is the track that the Matrix Music School children, which is a music school that I went to, we were Colin Greenwood and... What's his name? Nigel Godrich, yes, the producer, the came producer. came along one day and said, "We want to record." For I don't know what compelled them to do this. They must have been really bored of recording in the studio. That they, <laughs> it's not very far from because they went back to Oxford to record in Rainbows. So this music school, they came along and auditioned us, clapping to figure individually? out individually. No, I don't really know. I think they just sort of would. I'm just going to imagine that they just sort of pointed at some of us and said, "Fuck off!" Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you couldn't clap in time. But it was it was a fun day. Somewhere I've still got a, a sort of scrap of notepaper signed by Colin Greenwood. It was an entertaining experience. There's a picture. I think we're going to include it on the on the on something or other. Look the back, of the back of, of your the head. back of my head. Yeah, and, and Colin and Nigel. What a back of a head! It what is. a back of a head! It is. <laughs> yeah, fifteen step, great track. Yeah, um, it's fun, in fact, we've really. included it on a Spotify playlist called Radiohead Rules, which is thirty of um, what we deem to be, or I at least. Mark had no say whatsoever. <laughs> 30 of Radiohead's greatest tracks from Creep right through to A Moonshaped Pool, three tracks from that. Anyway, I think it's great. Uh, Jasper likes some of it. Some of it, um, yeah. I, I was going to say also, because we, we have this piece about Johnny Greenwood scoring for, for Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm a huge fan yeah. of Paul Thomas Anderson as a director, and yeah. I think that Johnny Greenwood's scores are among the most interesting film scores of the last how many years, 20 years or so. Yeah, I really and, agree. I mean, and also the, the stuff that he did together with, or he used Arvo Pitt's compositions yes. for There Will Be Blood, which I think is just an incredible film. And I, I think, for me, Johnny Greenwood is the most interesting bit of Radiohead. Couldn't agree more. And so... I I think you're probably right that without Johnny Greenwood, who genuinely is blessed with extraordinary musical talent, I'm not sure Radiohead would be 
the band that I think they are. He really sure. pushes the boat out musically. I think yeah. he just goes for stuff that you wouldn't hear otherwise, and I think that's where that envelope pushes. And a thoroughly decent human being as well. I mean, only met him once when he was guesting on a Pavement album. He just seemed like a very humble, um, quite intense, introverted guy. I, I really liked him. I think I think he, he is absolutely remarkable. We will move on. I mean, this is, this is there's no smooth segue from Radiohead to <laughs> Gladys Knight and the Pips, but that's where we're going now. And Mark, I so, so I hand over to yeah, you. Yeah, it's the audio interview. It's Cliff White interviewing Gladys Knight and her fellow Pips in 1976. They are really at a, at a sort of peak of their careers in 76. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, it, there isn't a massive amount of new information or anything, but they talk very interestingly about how they had become... A, an album that, and they talk about the way in which they'd gone from being regarded at Motown as just a singles act, but how being regarded as a singles act meant that they didn't... In fact, shall we play the clip now about precisely this? Let's do that. Before we came to Buddha and we were with other record companies, the word was kind of out that Last Night and Pips don't sell albums. And, uh, you know, really? like, yeah. yeah. And when we got ready to do our contract, you know, everybody was saying, well, we hear you guys don't, you know, they were using that as a thing like to, to keep our contract on a low mm-hmm. level, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and financially. And, 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 <laughs> at that time, Motown were primarily a singles market anyway. I mean, they, I, mean I guess some of their acts did sell albums, but they weren't. But they had, their albums had bad reputations as far as the public and press went. They really? Did. Most black acts didn't, wasn't really into that album style, single records. And uh, here recently, they uh, really have been going strictly on the album now. Single mm-hmm. records is not the thing, right. it's the uh, albums. Yeah. Yeah. But I was so proud Look of the fact care. from the time we went with Buddha, our first album went gold, and we haven't been since then. <laughs> right. You know, so it's really and a personal stop. triumph, yeah. sort of like for me. That's great. You know? yeah. So that's that's really interesting. Is this this idea that that because they're regarded as singles out, getting a decent deal for making albums uh, was hard, and then they go ahead and they start selling the Imagination album. I think went platinum. So there's a lot about that. There's a lot about keeping it soulful, even when doing fairly MOR stuff. We'll have a clip at the end of the show about that. They talk very glowingly about Buddha Records. Their relationship with Buddha didn't actually last much longer after this. I they went to Columbia, didn't they? They went to Columbia in about two 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 years in a welter of litigation. They also talk about the dancing, the choreography, getting the boys more up front. And they're marvellously rude about the stylistics on stage choreography. Because <laughs> they talk about Choliak. That's right. the great Motown That's uh, right. choreographer. Um, but also this idea that somehow that Bubba and the other boys need to have a higher profile in the band. But they can't really, because Gladys is the singer, and, and that was never going to happen. Well, but, let's talk about Gladys. I mean, what? words probably will fail us, Mark, won't they? Well, we, we both adore Gladys Knight. One of the things that triggered this was um, Richard Williams wrote a, in his Blue Moment, b- Blue Moment blog. blog about how of let's say the great soul singers mm. is that Gladys is the one who captures his heart more than for example Aretha Franklin mm. something I kind of agree with I think that we, we're all astonished by Aretha that she's a, was a remarkable and astonishing singer but there's something about Gladys which 
gets your heart a bit more. It's a bit more intimate. It's like she's singing yeah. to you in yeah. a much more direct sort of way. She's also got this fabulous quality of voice. And she can sing an enormous range of stuff whilst still being convincing. Well, let's say Aretha, when she went out of her comfort zone, sounded out of place, whether it's mm-hmm. in, in Colombia doing show tunes or, or whatever, mm-hmm. or disco, for example. Yeah. You know. Well, Gladys could sing just about anything. Yes. Um, an example of that is there's a fabulous clip on YouTube, which I ask you all to find, which is her with B.B. King doing a version of Percy Mayfield's wonderful song, Please Send Me Someone to Love. And they're doing a duet on it. And it's, it's a straight 50s blues R&B tune and she just just does it she just she's astonishing on that I think she's lovely I mean so the pretext is, there's, there's, there's two pretexts Richard's blog post that you referred to mm-hmm. is apropos a new compilation of Guys like the Pips, Buddha, and Columbia right. material, which is just coming out. But also, Gladys, of course, sang the Star Spangled Banner during the Super Bowl halftime show. She was somewhat controversially one of the few black artists mm-hmm. to sort of, as it were, break the Colin Kaepernick yep. boycott. Now, when I heard about that, I felt some disappointment, but actually, she put out a very thoughtful statement really? about it. Yeah, and just saying, well, look, I'm, I'm totally behind Colin Kaepernick. But I do also think that 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 song stands for something anyway. It's not, well, by implication, it's not a racist hymn. Sure. And, I mean, you know, uh, there are others I would resent for having done what she did, but but Gladys, I could almost forgive anything. Yeah. One thing that needs to be said about it, they're, they're from the South, of course. They're from Georgia, as in the great, you know, Midnight Train to Georgia. And they were slightly anomalous, in the Motown setup, because yes. she, you know, she she doesn't sound anything like Diana Ross mm-hmm. or or the Marvelettes mm-hmm. or even Martha Reeves. Really, she's got this deep soul yeah. quality to her voice. It, whether, as you say, whether she's singing a ballad like Neither One of Us, which I think is, is the one that just slays me more than yeah. the other, yeah. or whether she's doing extraordinary like uh, that that magnificent Van McCoy kind of disco track, Baby Don't Change Your oh, Mind. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, or the track we were talking about earlier, Save the Overtime for Me, Absolutely. from the 80s. That's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, she's got this just this ache and her voice tears, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? It's so raw yeah. sometimes. It, it doesn't matter what the tempo of the song no. You know, she is singing directly to you in a, in a way which is rare, yeah. right across all pop music, yeah. I'd say. Um, is she one of my favourite singers? I'd say, is she my favourite soul singer? Just possibly. Almost, you know. Yeah. And she influenced, mm. like, Candy Statton and Hugely. a lot of southern soul yeah. women. That thick uh, quality of her voice is that, something that you hear. Contra- I don't know if it's contralto, it's certainly yeah. alto, it's not Aretha, it's certainly not Diana Ross, it's 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 a deep but voice. the quality of the voice is something you hear on a lot of records coming out of Memphis and Muscle Shoals yeah. by other women singers. It's yes. that sort of dense, thick quality she's got. Anyway, she's marvellous. And it sounds so lovely, don't they, in yeah. the interview? They're all laughing, they're clear, like a family. Yeah. Um, and they talk about, because we talk about Gladys' singing, but what's also so important is is the very intricate and quite yeah. complex backing oh, vocal oh, yeah. arrangements around which, her. Which they talk about, that they work up their, their the, vocal arrangements. They also talk about, at that time in 76, cutting tracks live in the studio with mm-hmm. a band, which was becoming increasingly rare. One lovely last point about this interview is that Cliff at the beginning of it says, asks the various pips to introduce themselves so that he knows who's talking. It's lovely, isn't it? And so throughout the thing, yeah. that was Bubba. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That was William. That was Thank William. you, William. That's Bubba. Yeah, it's um, very uh, good. It's a very nice touch. And they sound, as you're saying, they sound delightful. They sound like they're friends. They sound like they enjoy each other's company. I believe 
I mean, she did do a lot of solo stuff towards the end, but I certainly haven't heard there was mm. any massive falling out with the Pips. That, no. That, I mean, they were, some of them were family. Always some of them nice when people can stay friends and, and be in the same well, band. Well, it's, it's sometimes possible. Yeah. Yes. Rarely. So that's, that's, so the, that's the great Gladys Knight. Yeah. Uh, also free on RBP this week are three pieces by the American writer John Young, who I think currently works for HBO, and perhaps he's uh, one of the writers on Game of Thrones or something. Probably not. <laughs> but he did write, back in yesteryear, he wrote for Trouser Press, our Robbins mm-hmm. and Dave Schulp's great magazine. So there's, there's a piece from 83 about the whole kind of British synth-pop invasion, and specifically about Yaz, as they were called in America, yep. of course. Uh, Yazoo here. But this is, he talks to, to Vince Clark about leaving Depeche Mode and, you know, Don't Go, I thought was absolutely brilliant. Yep. So Alf or Alison Moyet talks about, well, we're not, you know, we're not about synthesizers. That's yep. just that's just a sort yep. of, the kind sort of platform. We're not yep. as nerdy as you think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm a, as someone who reads a lot of stuff in the process of putting it on the site, I'm, I've got a soft spot for John Young in mm. He's actually got a... a particularly of the trouser press generation mm. of writers, he's got the broadest outlook in terms of the stuff he's interested yes. in. He likes black music in a way that doesn't really register with many of the trouser press writers. Um, and uh, he likes pop music. You know, he, he has no problem with pop. Um, I think it's a good point. And in fact, the other two pieces are, are post-trouser press for him. So he ended up writing for, for Cream and for Musician. And so there's a Cream encounter with LL Cool J at the sort of height of his, of his fame. Um, Bigger and Deffer has just come out. This is 87. So it, it's, it's an amusing portrait yeah. of, 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 the, of the guy in the, uh, the Kangol. Well, a year after that, um, Wendy and Lisa took me and my old band around Magic Mountain for a day out when we were in Los Angeles recording. And there was a stall where you could get your face placed in LL Cool J's <laughs> hat and, and, oh and gold. Say you did it, Mark. I didn't. Oh, oh Mark, no, come on. <laughs> you can't tease us with that. <laughs> I'm so disappointed. Uh, yeah, um... So LL so Cool J. I, I mean, I say that in brilliance, like we forget how massive LL Cool J was in the seven eighty eight. He and was yeah. amazing. That album had that the the ballad quote unquote I need love yes. on it, which was which is quite well, groundbreaking for the time. Well, there wasn't anything like it before it, that. It wasn't much good, but it wasn't that good. But no, you're well, you're right. Groundbreaking um, rubbish. He also <laughs> Mark's take on that. <laughs> he also interviews Mariah Carey in 1993 about the very good year uh, she's just had. Talks to her about the Unplugged album and so forth. Uh, one forgets what a massive star she was. I mean, I, she's still a big star. She still is a big star. Um, so, so John Young, um, and we move from there. Um, into what is new on Rock's Back Pages for our loyal subscribers. <laughs> Starting with Billboard March 64. What I hadn't realised that Cassius Clay, as he was then, had already recorded records before he became world champion. Mm. Um, really? Which, remember, he became a big star from winning the Olympics. Mm. And so he had just literally, a few days before this article, had to much to most people's surprise, beaten Sonny Liston for the heavyweight yeah. championship of the world. So Columbia suddenly rushing out his stuff. Clay predicted that his LP would outsell My Fair Lady, Columbia's original broadcast <laughs> um, which has sold more than five million albums, which it didn't. Uh, really? The label, of course, <laughs> did it has, has made no comment on Clay's prediction, but the executives are keeping in mind his forecast, Ray Liston. As for his entry into the singles market, Clay's reported to have said, I'm better and prettier than Chubby Checker. 
Well, he's certainly prettier than Chubby Checker. <laughs> was he? Unless Chubby. <laughs> what is his music like? I've never. Well, heard. he he did, yeah. he did a version of "Stand by Me." Yeah. Uh, There's uh, a great picture of Cassius. Or for younger listeners, we're talking about Muhammad, Muhammad Ali here. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a picture of him in the studio yeah. with Sam Cooke. That's Sam right. Cooke was a good pal of his and yeah. was trying to help facilitate his yeah. pop career. There's also because a great picture of Cassie's club with the Beatles isn't there but they're in the studio with, with the arranger H.B. Barnum and I guess you know yeah they thought he might he might succeed yeah. as an entertainer well, I've actually heard, I've heard a couple of them they're pretty terrible yeah, um, it was not as, <laughs> as far as predictions go Billboard August 10th opened as a report on the Clay album session with if Cassie's Clay is as fast with his hands as he is with his ad-libs he has a chance of beating Sonny Liston great <laughs> um, right. moving on December 67 the marvellous Nick Jones who's becoming a dear friend of Rock's Back Pages, who's Max Jones's son, the house hippie at Melody Maker, interviewing the Electric Prunes, and they're going on about their album Mass in F Minor and about how involved they were in the process. Jim Lowe says, Every sound on that album is pretty well thought out, reminded Jim. Everything means something. We don't just get noises and throw them in. Well, actually, they were barely involved in the making of that album. It's virtually all David Axelrod. So basically, this interview is a pack of lies, <laughs> <laughs> which is always fun. Well, uh, David Axelrod is always worth listening to. Yeah, well, whether, whether he's, it's, you know, whether he's producing the Electric Prunes or his own extraordinary records yeah. that he made for Capital uh, in that decade. Uh, Electric Prunes are kind of pretty much forgotten now. They were a, a pop psych band, is I think the best way yeah, to I've describe never heard them. Of them so. No, I mean they had. A couple of major hits in America okay. then, but they weren't... I had too much to dream last night, which is yep. one of the sort of great proto-psych, kind of crossover LSD songs. Uh, absolutely, but but they never had the credibility of the San Francisco psychedelic no. bands and so on and so forth. No, they were a major label garage band, really. Pretty much, you know, yeah. If that's not too much no. of an oxymoron. If we move forward to March 74, Vernon Gibbs, wonderful writer, Afro-American writer, but who also wrote for the New Musical Express as a sort of then New yeah. York R&B correspondent. Great writer. Great writer. Went to see Aretha Franklin Apollo, and this is the time when Aretha's career was slightly getting unravelled. Her Atlantic albums weren't selling so well. Her, she was losing direction. She was about to go disco and so on and so forth. And she was obviously trying to aim for some other sort of audience. So uh, Vernon writes, dances in yellow and black answer a call redolent of Las Vegas and they whirl to greet the sequent entrance of Aretha Franklin. The groans which greeted the orchestra and the dancers turn to squeals and exclamation of surprise and shock as Aretha takes centre stage. She looks uncomfortable in a bikinis see-through outfit that would look great on Pamela Greer, 38, 22, 36 approximately, but looks <laughs> absolutely undignified on Aretha. And he says later, but why try out her new act at the Apollo, where she's adored with much the same reverence Frenchmen give Edith, Edith Piaf? Why destroy her dignity in the one place that values such dignity above everything else? Gosh. And it's, so it's a really interesting piece, and it, it really catches Aretha at that moment when she was kind of losing her own sense of direction. Mm -hmm. Her record sales were down. Her old school version of Soul was becoming less and less popular. Yes. Philadelphia was taking over in a hurry. So it's so all sort of becoming more glamorous in a way, isn't yeah. it, at this point? Yeah. And you're moving out of the kind yeah. of Afro-Black Power era uh, into... Uh, uh, she, this, the first album by Aretha I ever bought, apart from Aretha's Greatest mm -hmm. Hits, 
was I think that year 74 yeah. and it, maybe it's called With Everything I Feel In Me mm. and she's wearing she's sort of swaddled in this fur coat yeah. and it and it sort of is it's a real departure from from the diaretha of kind of respect and well, the film well, of worst quite, uh, we're talking about Gladys Knight now Gladys Knight went through that sort of transitional period with t- dignity entirely mm. intact partly because I think Gladys Knight had a clear idea of who she was as a singer. Mm. And I think Aretha never really had a clear idea of who she was. Mm. She would find a spot, which is clearly her, the 67 mm. to sort of 71 yes. sort of stuff, almost by accident or at the behest of Jerry Wetzel. And of course she started out in the supper club. That's right. You know, um, she was not a soul singer yeah, yeah. at the beginning of her career no, at that, 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 Well, you could say she started out in the church, which is another comedy. Sorry, of course yeah, she yeah, started yeah, out in yeah, the church, think, yeah. but, um, but in terms of her, record, her commercial yeah, that, that's uh, true. profile. That interesting, the start out in the church I wonder to what extent based on what you were saying earlier about Gladys Knight feeling more intimate mm-hmm. as a singer with you as a listener I think when Aretha is great she's making you feel part of a group of, of a, a congregation crowd. of a congregation yeah. right I think that mm. whereas, whereas Gladys Knight is singing to just you mm. I, I, that's, I, th- I think that's a, that's a very interesting take on it and I think, I think there's a lot to be said for that I think if you, if you are a star in the church and Aretha was a star at the age of 14 sure. um, is you are singing out to a large crowd and I think it does change the way in which you approach Moving on to 75, uh, Brian, the marvellous Brian Case, interviewing this less than marvellous Larry Coryell. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, y- y- you know, uh, there are actually a couple of really quite good Larry Coryell albums, especially his earlier stuff when he was a very bluesy and rocky guitar player rather than jazzy player. But I just love this because of his language. He says, I find jazz to be the area of integrity and purity as opposed to the rather swineherdish obnoxia of much of the rock culture. And then later on he says, I try to absorb the intervallic partialities that come from playing with those unexpected intervals. Oh, I mean, this, huge. He's, course, he's, 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 he's swallowed the dictionary. Intervallic partialities. It's not even exist. No. It's like a word out of a Philip K. Dick novel. Okay, 79, Pete Silverton was sent by Sounds to investigate the no-wave scene in New York. First of all, he's probably the wrong person to send because he obviously doesn't like what he's hearing all that much, you know, or the people he's dealing with. <laughs> and he meets James Chance, who says, I can't stand liberals. They're so stupid and wishy-washy and their whole philosophy is so half-assed. Or, I'm not interested in being a starving artist. What I do, I do for money. I don't do it for art's sake or anything like that. I mean, this is just James Chance being James Chance. You know, it's classic. Utterly obnoxious. And we talked about him last week. Well, and it's nice also to... Normally, our pull quotes are sort of, you know, woolly left liberal, aren't they, on the home (laughs) Vaguely progressive. So, uh, this is is one for the Trump face. You're you're saying he's a Ted Nugent of the no-wave scene, you know. (laughs) 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 But, 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 you know, it's it's a big piece... But I think Pete Silverton's discomfort with much of what he's listening to and with the people he's dealing with kind of comes through in the piece, which is fine. It's a bit of a shame because actually I'd kind of like to have heard someone a bit more, maybe, because I love that music. I'm, I love the No Wave stuff. Mm. Anyway, we've got a big birthday party piece from 1983, early 1983, Chris Bond interviewing all of them. Um, and it's interesting, really, in that actually that band fell to pieces within months of this interview taking place. Mm. They're all living on people's floors. I mean, in, in theory, they should have had enough money in their pockets to be able to rent places, but I suspect all their money was going into their arms or wherever else. They were a very fractured bunch of people by that point. And it's really interesting on that 
that basis. I mean, I remember this piece, I mean, not least because Chris was a pal of mine on the NME and a sort of ally in terms of, you know, those of us who kind of cleaved the birthday party as a resistance to all the sort of synthy haircut yep. pop music of the time. There wasn't a lot going on like, like, like the birthday party. I had myself, I mean, so I'd written about the birthday party. I remember seeing them in uh, LA uh, on the sunset strip at the Roxy of all places, <laughs> the least suitable place for birthday party. And it was clear to me, it was a rather half-hearted performance, having witnessed numerous mm-hmm. birthday party shows in London where you were lucky to get out alive, yeah, or they yeah. were lucky to get out alive, and there was just mayhem and carnage and violence, and it was utterly exciting. Um, they seem to have kind of lost the will to do that when I saw them, yep. probably in the spring of 83, I'm guessing. Which and as you say, not long after yep. that. So there were two extraordinary EPs that sort of, in a sense, closed the, the, the Nick Cave chapter on the birthday party. Yep. I mean, I, um, I, I, I was... Which was sorry, just were, were yeah, mut- sure. mutiny and yep. the other one was the bad seed yep. and they were absolutely brilliant yep. but it, it, they were in a sense transitional yep. uh, statements that led to Nick forming yep. the bad seed uh, I, I saw the uh, birthday party a couple of times and was extremely impressed by them I don't do I, did I like mm. them not necessarily I was extremely impressed by them I still prefer them to work that Nick Cave has done subsequently I found his leap, and he talks about it in this article about his in, interest in Southern Gothic and his wholesale adoption of Southern Gothic as his aesthetic afterwards, I found a bit fraudulent, personally. But well, and and a, the ass that saw the angel, that, yeah. that really laboured, sort of his Urzat Southern Gothic novel that he wrote. Oh, I mean, God, I think yes. he did start to take himself perhaps a little too seriously. Well, a, a lot of people around him took him seriously, and I think yeah. if that happens, it'll happen. Yeah. Richard Cromlin interviews Etta James, who's on the way back after years of struggling with addiction and so on and so forth. She's just been it's nominated. It's all heroin this week, it, it, isn't it? It is. It's, it's, it's I'll jump heroin all the time. <laughs> Here on Rock's back um, <laughs> She'd just been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which she was enormously pleased about. You know, she felt that, she said, you know, if you wait long enough, good things do come to you, sort of stuff. And and it's, it's a very nice piece. But she says, you know, when she was young, all my role models at that time, the ones I looked to the most, were heroin addicts. Ray Charles, Billy Holiday, Chet Baker. She didn't stand a chance. She didn't really stand a chance. Last piece of that I've selected is we got this interview with Max Clifford, the loathsome uh, and now dead uh, <laughs> Max. <laughs> loathsome and dead. Dead Max Clifford. Uh, in Tom Better Hibbert, than loathsome and alive, I suppose. <laughs> in Tom Hibbert's Who the Hell Does Max Clifford Think He Is section of, of Q magazine. And we put it in because actually Max Clifford cut his teeth as a music publicist for EMI, among others. And so Tom asks him, you know, what did you think of the people who worked? What do you think of Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan, he was a miserable sod. I just didn't <laughs> want to know him. He was totally in love with himself. He thought he was the savior of the world. And if he said bollocks, you were supposed to curtsy your bow because that was profound and deep and obviously meant something. Anything that he said, so many people around him were literally writing it into a Bible because it was Dylan's thought. That never made any sense to me. But that kind of American star is always surrounded by his own people and they don't want their stars talking to anyone who's remotely honest, like me, because it might, that might destroy all the lies. Um, 
Then the last one is... is I what? like Max Clifford rather more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel exactly the same way about Bob yeah. bloody uh, And he says, you know, what, yep. was, what, what was Hendrix like to work with? Well, the, time, the little time I spent with Hendrix, he was out of his head. He didn't know what he was, let alone where he was. There were tantrums and tempers and violence. He was just out of his brains. He was gone. Now, that's really sad. I guess his brief experience of Hendrix was quite late. Hendrix, mm. 69, mm. 70 Hendrix. Because we both know people who worked with Hendrix back in 67, 68, and their, res- their reply would be exact opposite of that. Nancy Lewis is one of our writers who is track records first publicist. When I met her, she said, oh, Jimmy, he was a doll, mm. you know. Um, mm. And Keith yeah. Oldham remains mm. enormously fond of Jimmy. Mm. So I suspect that Clifford briefly met that very burnt-out husk of Jimi Hendrix who was on the, on the circuit in towards the end of 69 and through 1970. Right. That's my only interpretation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. What about yeah. you? Anything you found in particular spiffing? I have a huge amount to talk about. Jasper and I maybe can address pieces from the last, you know, almost 20 years, including, you pulled a quote from a Prefab Sprout piece. Now, we had them on the site just the other day, so yeah. we're going to labour this, but Tom Cox interviewing Paddy in 2000 for The Guardian, and it's just a quote that I think a lot of people could sort of essentially kind of agree with. A lot of musicians reinvented themselves as people who didn't have record collections till the summer of 1976. Secretly, I was always listening to Steely Dan's Asia. This is a great quote because actually it speaks very directly to my own experiences. Mm. Is, is that I actually I got rid of records. I kind of sold off Little Feet records, which I probably bought. Actually, sold Little Feet, and, and I bought them back like a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, eight, twice eight, the price. Eight, twice yeah. the price. Eighteen <laughs> months later, that th- what he says is absolutely true. People used to hide the records they bought before 1976. <laughs> Because it was a year zero, punk year mm. zero, you know. Mm, right. And all of that prog, all... It, it was a kind of purge, it was it, like it was, a Maoist purge. One of the <laughs> things I have a lot of time for John Lydon about, one of the few things I have a lot mm. of time for John Lydon about, is when he went on Capital Radio, yes. famously, and played... Well, he played Peter Hamill. But, uh, well, it, uh, it, and, he, and he played, it, oh gosh, what else but, did but he all, play? Uh, Neil Young? He, he played he, Neil Young. He played Can. Can, he played, yeah. played, uh, Much to Malcolm Clarence Fury, because he's under... Exactly. This whole notion of him being a he wasn't tying the party line. Yeah. So there's that. Otherwise, I liked very much a long piece by the DJ Greg Wilson. Um, ah, yes. Who we, we've got a number of pieces, also dance floor oriented, inevitably, mm-hmm. but long piece that he wrote when Daft Punk's Get Lucky came out, 2013. So it's a long piece placing Daft Punk and that record and that album in the context of the history of disco so it's it's really asking is this kind of kick-starting a revival of the disco right. oh, and he goes so into huge. great depth yeah. about about disco and he's very good on disco he's I mean there aren't many there aren't many DJs who can actually yeah. write about what uh, well, they do and write sure, about the music well, absolutely. I mean Greg's a really interesting guy I mean he, he was a pre- kind of house music dance music explosion DJ mm. up in Liverpool mm. and then and st- ha- has been writing about it for, for a number of years he, you know he can write I've seen him play a number of times mm. his big thing is he has a revox on st- uh, two revoxes on stage okay. he, he actually makes edits on the spot oh, and really? things like That's, that you talk Very about cool. re-edits yes yeah, so he's, he's really mm. big on, on re-edits um, and, and you know, he juggles that and turntables, and he, you know. Yeah. But but he, he's he's a very interesting guy. He's a wonderful DJ. If you ever get the chance chance to see him play out, Great. he doesn't play out as much as he used to. No. Um, I'm very glad we got his writing on the site because he's got a very deep historical view of disco yeah. in particular, 
but everything's sort of substance. and this is from his own site uh, yeah. Electrofunk Roots yeah. I think it's called no. and when we featured the blogs of our writers of some of our writers uh, his, his post was sort of feeding and this was a very 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 long piece as it happened so anyone's interested I, in that I'm era. a huge Daft Punk mm. fan so I haven't read it yet but Me I too. definitely will be I mean, yeah. Me too. I think we all, just... we all revere yes. Le, Le Punk and I, uh, interestingly a lot of people who really like Daft Punk kind of initially were sceptical of random access memories or are still sceptical mm. of random access memories which is their kind of ode to, to disco or yeah. really Marauder I mean, yeah, yeah. Nile Rodgers yeah but actually I it might be my favourite Daft Punk album actually mm. I think it is in some sense utterly revivalist but in another sense it's them trying to it's sort of mission statement for how they want to make music mm-hmm. even though it's the 21st which century remind me which album is, is that Random Access Memories yeah, which, which one is that's it? the one it's the, it's the much disco a much more live instrument they, they yeah. basically they got a bunch of session yeah. players spent like a million dollars on because I mean the one thing I think was the least successful was their collaboration with Nile Rodgers who I revere I love Daft Punk I revere Nile Rodgers I found the putting the two together I didn't like it. Oh, I, I thought I thought God, it was chic redux. I thought it was chic redux. I think um, that's too simplistic. I, 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 hey, I, I, I do simplistic. <laughs> um, no, no. I, I mean, simple. you know, I, I I love them both. I found putting them together oh, think, d- didn't work. Didn't work for me. I think it's so. oh. I mean, I would say my favourite dark punk album is probably Discovery. I mean, oh, yeah, like, okay, if I had to take yeah, a dark yeah. punk yeah. album to a desert one. island, it would be that. But yeah, I, mean, I, yeah, I, I do really. I just think. I just think. Yeah, this idea that they they wanted to do something, then suddenly they had the means to do it, and sort of when before they were sampling other people's records with Random Access Memories they kind of made their own record to sample mm. and put in their own electronic context I just think it's a very yeah. interesting project to have done yeah. no, I mean it's a very, very interesting band um, yeah. I'd say one of the most interesting bands in the last 15 Absolutely. 20 years definitely. Definitely. one can call them a band can one call yes, them a band 25 years two guys and two guys can be a band I guess it can two yeah, soft, soft sell were a band two, two guys, guys with helmets yeah, yeah, t- yeah and, and lots of electronic keyboards. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. I think I think Good brilliant. stuff. So there we go. Jasper, anything else yeah, you there want was to mention? Two things I wanted to mention. One is a, a sort of reasonably long Latitude Festival review from 2009 by Luke Turner and The Quietus, the lineup of which includes Tom York. So I figured that would be. Oh. And also Nick Cave and The Bad Seeds, I think, as okay. well. But so Luke Turner really liked. Grace Jones at the festival, mm-hmm. who was also on the bill, and really didn't like Tom York, so I thought that was funny. Uh, He's a man off my own heart. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, he was poisoned against Radiohead by Mark when he worked for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Luke, Luke's great. I mean, uh, I saw Grace Jones at festival around a similar sort of time around, maybe about four, three years later or something, and she was astonishing. I mean, she's one of the few acts of her generation who can go on a stage now and really pull it off and be riveting and exciting and all of that sort of stuff, That's you know, great. Uh, and amusing and sort of laughing at yeah, herself. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's totally know. taken by her. And yeah. Just sort of, yeah, just, she's irreverent and funny and yeah. a good performer. I, I, was, I, I wasn't expecting her to be anything like as good as she mm. was when I saw her. But. And shout out for Luke, who worked for us for a while yep. with Mr. us. Mr. Um, Turner. Mr. Turner, we, we adore. And um, has a book out. And has a book out. So so a shout out for that. It's an ex- I've not had a chance to read it yet. It's, uh, by all accounts, an extraordinary book about Epping Forest, or it's sort of centred around yes. the sort of legends and myths and weirdnesses of, uh, and, of, of uh, life in 
standing around Epic and Epic his deeply, Forest. deeply personal stuff in relation to that. So yeah, um, it's, a, it's, um, a, it's a memoir, come kind of you know psychogeographical. Yes. You know, text. I think some very good reviews. Very good review in the Guardian about three, four weeks ago. So, hi, Luke. We love you. We love the Quietus. We love John Doran, and we hope your book does very well. Absolutely. What's it called? Out in the woods? Is it called something like that, or is that a Bon Eva song? <laughs> <laughs> I get so confused when it comes to woods. The other thing, the other thing, the other thing was our first, I think, our first childish Gambino piece. Oh. Caroline Sullivan in the Guardian review of his album "Because the Internet." Childish Gambino, of course, Donald Glover, yeah. actor, director, sort of all round maker of the greatest video of the last right twenty four months. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> um, but this is him before he got really huge. I mean, he was kind of big as a rapper but people didn't really accept him as that and he, no. he raps about that and this is kind of an interesting it's not a glowing review it's, it's not a brilliant album I prefer what he then did which was totally not rap which was called Awaken My Love and that was his sort of like sort of solely R&B funk album that is really exciting I think but because the internet Caroline Sullivan kind of describes as being well worth a listen but pretty fractured and uncertain of itself which is interesting given his whole current take he is kind of a dual personality he, he made music under the name Charles Gambino mm. but makes films and television under his name Donald Glover right and I just think he's a really interesting guy and I think he, he undoubtedly he will so hopefully do a lot more welcome cool to the Rock's Back Pages yeah. library childish <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic and that probably brings us to the close in terms of highlights of what's going into Rock's Back Pages this week and I think we're going to bow out aren't we Mark yes we're with uh, another audio clip Gladys Knight talking about doing standards is that she's aware that doing things like the way we were yes was, slushy sort of stuff w- was um, alienating to some of her audience and she says but then we come back with uh, a midnight train and so on mm. and so forth that they, they can do both and actually Cliff White which at this point injects and says well you do those things really well too you know the slushy stuff really well we've actually uh, put together a very nice I think Spotify playlist for Gladys Knight and yeah. Pips which sort of showcases all the different sides some of the up-tempo mm. stuff their mm. amazing original version of um, Heard It Through the Grapevine yeah. of oh, such a long career yeah I mean you know we have to go 1961 right. Every Beat of My Heart wow yeah so they were sort of pre-soul yeah and right through, the mid, right through yeah. to the mid 80s yeah. you know yeah. um, right uh, through to the Super Bowl well, 2019 indeed. you know yeah. so, we, so we, we, we all bow down before Gladys but yeah. check out the uh, Richard Williams wrote, you know, wrote this lovely piece and, and actually I, I just checked some of the guys like the Pip songs that he references and we've stuck um, some of them in there and uh, it, I think it makes it a little more interesting and eclectic than, than probably your average Gladys Knight Spotify playlist. So this is the final clip then. This is this is also from the interview. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us this week. See you next week. Bye. In the process of, of making certain changes, you know, I think people got a little uptight at points when we would do certain kinds of materials say, oh, they're going to do this, but we always come back. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm-hmm. or nice. we do a standard like the way we were, mm-hmm. or help me make it through the night. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
you know, they think we're getting ready to go off on them or something like that. But then we'll come back with an imagination yeah. or a midnight train or something right, like that. Right. But even when you do the standards that you're talking about purely by the way you interpret it, it makes it into a soul mm-hmm. record as opposed to the right thing anyway. Yeah, well, that's just us, I guess. That was Gladys Knight and the Pips in discussion with Cliff White in 1976, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. RBP's new Radiohead anthology, Present Tense, is available now from all good bookshops, and also Amazon. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. to be the